Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back, folks, to another episode of Big Swinging Stocks. We're joined this week by Kate Howitt, who, in addition to having more than two decades' experience at Fidelity and AMP Capital, is by far the most stylish woman I know. And this week, we're back with our Invest Like a series, where we take you into real people's real portfolios. But not so that you can copy them, but because we want to see how ordinary people make extraordinary decisions about their money. And, well, because we're all a bit voyeuristic. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to the pod or welcome to the pod for the very first time, but hopefully not the last, Kate. Thanks, Alex. This has been a long time coming. We've been trying to set this up for a while, so it's great to finally be here. I have to say, I think my teenage daughter would disagree with you about me being stylish. I don't know how much style Gen Z has. Like it's a very different take on the world perhaps. So we'll go with that. Yeah, exactly. Different versions of stylish. (laughs) For sure. So tell me, you've obviously been in the finance industry for a while, but what's your first memory of investing? It kind of depends on how you want to think about it. I think the first big investment I made was my education. You know, I got a degree in America, so it cost me a lot of money. And then I realized I wasn't actually going to be qualified to do anything. And so I had to turn around and do it again, make another big investment. And my husband had done something similar. So we came back to Sydney and we were sitting around thinking, we're the only people we know who don't own a house. We had negative net worth because we owed so much money in America for our education. So it was like we had a mortgage, but no house. It wasn't like we could sell the house and pay off the mortgage. We just had the mortgage and then whatever was stuck in our brains. You know, there's a saying that some of your best investments make you feel a bit sick, make you feel nauseous. And, you know, that was kind of one of those for a while, just knowing how deeply in debt we were with no assets to our name. So fortunately, that started to pay off and we were able to use our MBAs to get jobs and start to earn some money. I didn't actually make a direct share investment until I realized that I wanted to go into investing as a professional and had some advice that you have to do it yourself. And it kind of makes sense. Like there's no point going in and saying, hey, I want to do this professionally but I've never even done it as an amateur. And so I sat down and read a couple of books and I've read heaps of investing books over time. The two that kind of made the most sense to me at that point when I was just starting out is One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, which is kind of funny because Peter Lynch was a big fidelity guru when I ended up working at Fidelity. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm actually working at the same place as Peter Lynch. And the other one is called Expectations Investing. That's why a guy called Mike Moberson. And that one was really helpful because it kind of showed how to look at an individual stock and how to figure out if the market is already putting too much into the price of that stock with some kind of short modeling. So pulling up Excel, doing some sums in Excel, but not doing a 200-row model, but just some short sums to kind of see What's in the price for that stock? Is it already like super expensive or is it good value relative to what might come? Just started doing that with just a couple of stocks on the Aussie market just to get the feel for it. And then that gave me something that I was able to talk about when I ended up doing interviews to actually get into the industry. Were those two books quite formative in your philosophy around investing? What would you say that is now? 
they were quite formative in terms of individual stocks. And even now, and as a professional investor, I was very much focused on individual companies. And I was less of a kind of macro person of, oh, it's time to be in bonds, it's time to be in equities. You know, all of those kind of general asset class decisions never really made much sense to me. And, you know, I can talk about my adventures with other asset classes and when I think that asset allocation decision makes sense. But for me, I've always really wanted to understand the business models. I think the mistake you make is just seeing stocks as either numbers in the spreadsheet or as kind of poker chips that you're betting with. Businesses are actually almost organic things. They're run by humans. Things go badly for them. Things go well for them. They have risks. They have challenges. They have opportunities. So those books were helpful for me in starting to think about how do you understand the kind of prospects for a business? And then how do you kind of put a price on that and bring that back to a share price? Because investing, and this is a Warren Buffett thing too. He says you should never own shares in a company unless you would be happy owning the whole business. And if the stock exchange closed tomorrow and you were owning the whole business for 10 years. So don't just think of, oh, I'd like, a, I'd like to take a punt on that, but actually understand the business and say, well, if it was my only asset for 10 years, would I be happy with it? And I think that's a really good way to start when you're thinking about buying an individual stock is to kind of make sure you understand the business. That's a great reflection. And is investing for you a means of financial independence? And if so, was there a target net goal, net worth goal that you wanted to achieve? Yeah. So the dirty little secret of my career that I can let out of the bag now that I'm retired is investing for me was just fun and interesting. And I just loved learning about businesses. And I kind of felt like, wow, I can't believe they actually pay me to do this because this is fun. I would, I would show up and do it. And I was very careful to like, must not tell them I would do this for free. But I just always loved learning about companies and it's kind of the study of change. You know, are things going to be better for this company in the next five years or are they going to be worse? You know, if things are going to be better and they're going to be earning more money, throwing off more cash, paying bigger dividends, the share price is going to go up. And if things are going to get worse, then share price is not going to perform well. I loved understanding that and trying to figure out how the world was changing and, and which companies, you know, was it getting better and which companies was it getting worse? Though my husband and I did sit down when we started from this, you know, deeply indebted position of negative net worth. And we were talking about, we're saying, well, we've got to get our heads around this and how much do we need to retire? And I said to him, we need a worm. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you know, in one day cricket, when they've got the run rate and they've got the required one rate and they've got the worm, it kind of tells you, oh, that this team is really behind. So they've got to get a lot of runs. The worm's got to go sharply up for them to win. And of course, my husband being a bloke, he understood that. And so we sat down and put together a worm saying, well, here's where we are now. We're really low down. We've got no money. We're in debt. And here's what we need to get to to be able to retire. And let's see if we can get that worm going in the right direction. And you're retired now. Tell us. Yes. Yeah, so like they say, money doesn't give you happiness, but it does give you choice and flexibility. And so I've now got the ability to say after 20 years of a fun job, but a hard job, and a full-on job because markets markets never stop. So it's a never-ending role. And so I'm now in the position where I can say, I've done that, I've enjoyed it, and I now want to move on to the next stage of my life and still have some participation in markets. I mean, I can't just switch off that kind of fascination with commercial enterprise, but I want to, I want to do it in a different way, in a way that's not so full-on. So that's been really great. 
Yeah. You said you're doing it for fun as a dirty secret at work. Now you're just doing it for you, managing your own assets. Let's talk a little bit about your investments. You mentioned that there was a lot of very interesting things, asset classes that you've been investing in. What were they? If we think about the asset classes that that we've invested in, we did eventually buy a house. So like everyone, we've got an asset of property. That's the Australian way. But I never was comfortable that property was the best way to grow wealth. That's very anti-Australian of you, Kate, actually. (laughs) I know, but I just don't think, I mean, I like to own the house I live in, but I don't want to have too much of my assets tied up in the same asset of anything. So I am a fan of diversification. I started buying stocks to kind of help get into the industry I wanted to be in. The interesting thing there is that we then kind of became really overexposed to stocks because I was fortunate that the company that I was in had an equity scheme and I was able to buy an equity to that. But that equity is super leveraged to stock markets because Fidelity was an investment management firm. So when stock markets are going well, then that equity that I owned would do well. And if stock markets aren't doing well, then that equity is not doing so well. And then on top of that, Fidelity had quite rightly very tight compliance procedures that actually made it really, really hard for the portfolio managers to own shares individually. It wasn't that we owned no shares, but they were very tight about what you could own and how you could trade it and things like that. And I think that's right. You don't want to have these conflicts between Like if I learn something at work about a stock and I sell it personally, but retain it in the funds or something like that. So we actually kind of felt like, and this is something that financial theory talks about, which is when you're young, you can think of your future earnings as an asset because you can have cash flows coming in over time. And when you're young, that asset is quite stable because you've got decades ahead of you. You've got a lot of paychecks ahead of you. And so that asset in aggregate, is like a bond. So if you're going to diversify against that, you should invest in something that is more growth-oriented and can be more volatile. Because if, you, you know, if you're young and you buy some stocks and they go up and then they go down, that's okay because you're hedged by the fact that you've got your future income stream that's quite a stable asset. So this is part of why your asset allocation should change over your life. You should buy, um, you know, more aggressive, risky assets when you're young, which is also, you know, you, you can put property in that depending on your view on property. When you get older, however, when you get to the point where you don't have as many paychecks left, or you're at the point where if you lose your job, it might be hard to get another one because you're at the tail end of your career, suddenly that asset of your future earnings turns from being a really stable defensive one into being quite a volatile, risky, uncertain one. And so at that point, the assets that you own yourself, separate to that, you want to be more defensive through time. I've never had anyone talk about it in that way. Yeah. So, you know, you want a mix of defensive and growth assets. And because your earning power changes over time, then the assets that you own directly should change over time. So I spent, you know, the last couple of decades where I should have been owning a lot of equities, but instead I had that exposure through the equity that I had with my work. And so then when I owned myself separately, I was kind of blocked from doing a lot of that. So we did own some equities, but then there were other things to buy too. 
So it's always the most interesting one was we had the financial crisis here. It actually wasn't that bad. Australia had a very good, and I'm talking about the GFC, so back problems. The bull market went on till the end of 2007. Stock markets went down for over a year during 2008 and into 2009. And then the aftermath of that in 2009 through 2010, Australia had a pretty good GFC. Developed markets had worse. And in some developed markets, the US, the UK, Ireland, Spain, they had really bad experiences and especially property. Property prices fell really precipitously. And property prices in the US fell dramatically. And I started to get really interested in that and thinking there are going to be some bargains. So I started looking, and this is kind of the internet is becoming more and more of a thing. There were starting to be some websites that you could use to look at properties online. So I could sit in Australia and look at properties in the US and you could see that prices were coming down and there were distressed sales. So you had this phenomenon where people had a mortgage and then the property price dropped they lost their job. They couldn't pay their mortgage. So the house got repossessed to the banks. The banks would go to sell it, but they would look and say, oh, well, the copper pipes have been ripped out or the air conditioning doesn't work or the floor is ruined. And because of that, they couldn't put any tenants in there or they couldn't sell it as is. So you just got what are called distress sales. So you were getting houses going for $50,000. And at this point, the Aussie dollar was strong, so it was pretty close to parity. So you could kind of think Australian dollars, US dollars, it wasn't that different. And I was looking at that going, oh my God, that's unbelievable. Because if you think, you know, Sydney prices weren't as bad as they are now, but still like 50,000 was more like a deposit on a house, not a full house. And so I started doing the sums of saying, okay, if I want to invest in property as an investment property and I want to get $500 income, how much do I have to invest to get the same income? And when I compared Atlanta in the US to Canberra, I had to put down 10 times as much money in Canberra to get the same income off of those properties. Than you had to in Atlanta. And 20 times in Sydney. So if I want to get rental income, I had to put 20 times as much in Australia, or if I could take that money and I could buy 20 houses in Atlanta. So that's what we started doing. We started buying houses for one twentieth of what they would have cost us in Sydney at that point. And so this is my question of, should you allocate between bonds and equities? Like I've never been particularly interested by that or particularly good at that because there's not that much in it. Like there might be a bit more upside in one or the other, but every so often you get these big dislocations. It just creates these enormous opportunities. And so that was a huge leg up for the worm because we bought these properties and we weren't able to get debt finance, so we had to kind of buy them outright, but we were getting 10% yield on them, more than that 12% yield in terms of the return that we were paying. So we had to buy the properties and then we had to pay someone to kind of fix the floor or the air conditioning or whatever it was to make them rentable. And then we started renting them out. Now, the funny thing is, you know, we're basically online shopping. We're online shopping properties. And so we'd look on Google Earth, which is pretty new at the time, and say, oh, yeah, this property that we think we're buying, when you go on Google Earth, it looks the same. So we probably are actually buying a house rather than just being scammed. But we didn't know. So we bought one in Atlanta and it rented and it did fine. We thought, okay, let's do that again. So we bought another one in Atlanta. And then we thought, well, I wonder where they are in relation to each other. So we zoomed out on Google Maps. And when we looked at where they were, we discovered that that first property we bought 
was right at the end of the runway of Atlanta Airport, which is a freight airport as well as a passenger airport. And it's one of the busiest airports in the world. And we went, oh my God, like because we bought online on the other side of the world, we had no idea that this place we bought almost certainly had really bad airport noise. But it rented fine because we'd done our other homework. You know, we'd made sure it was close to hospital, close to schools. Atlanta was a growing area. We'd done a lot of work to say where in the US would we buy, where would we not buy? And that was a great asset. Made a lot of money from the rental. Yeah. So do you still have those properties? And curious question, are they your best performing asset? So we bought some in Denver. The ones in Atlanta were of lesser quality. And so we didn't want to hold them too long. So we've sold out those by now, but we did really well, both on the income that we got. And then we kind of doubled or tripled our money when we sold them. Although I have to say very painful process. Like all of this is very fiddly. We had to, you have state tax, so you have to come up with an investment company to own them and then you have to do tax returns in the US. Like it was legwork involved. It wasn't, it wasn't nearly as easy as just buying a share and you just get your chest statements in the mail. There was a, a lot of fiddly work involved in it. We also bought some in Denver and those ones are a bit of build quality and so we've held some of those a bit longer. So they weren't the kind of thing we could hold forever, but they were a great return. And this is one of the interesting things about holding period and asset. There was a saying inside Fidelity of where are all the 10 baggers. So a 10 bagger is industry, US investment jargon for multiples, right? So a 10 bagger is a stock where, you know, you buy it for $10 and you sell it for a hundred. You go, oh, it was a 10 bagger. How great is that? And a guy wrote an internal memo saying, where are all the 10 baggers? And he basically showed that it's extraordinarily rare for a stock to go up tenfold in a short period of time. So mostly your best returning holdings are ones where you hold them for a long period of time and give the market time to compound. So you can get a really good return in a couple of different ways. One of them is by finding an okay asset that you can buy at a really good price and then it just reverts up to its normal value, which is not that great and it might not be growing that much, but just when it goes from being a really distressed sale asset to a normal price, you make your uplift that way. And the other way you make it is from buying into a company, usually a company, that grows its own value over time. So you might buy it at fair value. You might even buy it a bit above fair value, but it just grows and compounds through time and you just kind of go along for the ride with that. So we made money because those houses were so super cheap, just ridiculously dislocated cheap when we bought them. But we've had some great investments in shares in Australia where we've bought them and just basically held them for decades. What's your best performing Aussie stock? For me, that was actually one that I owned institutionally and that was A2 Milk. So I bought A2 Milk when it listed in Australia, listed in Australia at $2. Oh, sorry. No, it listed, I think, at 50 cents. And I think I made about 17 times my client's money. 17 bagger. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. And it went up a bit. It went up a bit further than that. So I kind of look, you know, you always look and go, oh, I could have held it a bit longer. But then, of course, it fell again. And so I think that's another thing that we were very clear about inside Fidelity is you cannot be perfect on your timing. And it's really important not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, particularly if you're running institutional money. Even if you had a crystal ball and you knew what was the peak of that stock, there's not enough liquidity there to be able to sell. So you have to be early or late. And that means that you either feel like, oh, I left money on the table or, oh, I sold too late. But if you try to pick 
the top or the bottom, you're going to get it wrong and you're going to make mistakes. So you've got to kind of plan. You just got to know that you cannot be perfect on timing. You know, so if a stock is overvalued enough, then sell it out. And even if it runs a bit further and you're going to feel like an idiot either way. If you're going to invest, you're going to feel like an idiot a lot. It's just going to say there's something really comforting about knowing that that's advice given to institutional investors because we're all human and the market is unknowable. So even with all that institutional knowledge, there's still a little bit of guesswork and timing and luck. So we, Fidelity being a company that's been around for 50, 70 years, had huge amounts of data on everything. We would track our analysts who make the recommendations, you know, this stock is buy, this stock is a sell, and we would track them. Did the buys go up more than the market? Did the sells go up less than the market? The typical Fidelity average analyst was getting it right 55%. And our really top analysts were getting it right 58 or 59%. And that was enough for us to make money for our clients. But the trouble was, and we would talk about this in our orientation, you know, I would do some of the training and I would say to them, look, we have hired you because you're the kind of people who get 98% on your exams. And if you drop down the 92%, you work harder until you're back up at 98%. But now you are doing something where mathematically you can't do that. You'll be getting it right about 55% of the time and maybe 58% of the time. One of the hardest things is to be psychologically ready to be wrong 45% of the time because the answer is not, I'm going to study harder and I'm going to get, you can't, you know, you could work 20 hours a day and you still are not going to be getting it right 70% of the time. And so it's psychologically really hard. So part of it is pain threshold. It's like I read um, Lance Armstrong's book before he was discredited as a drug chief, but he said that elite cycling was all about pain tolerance. The winner of the cycling race was the one who could tolerate the most pain. And there's some of that is true with investing. The ones who stick around long enough to get the 10 baggers are the ones who can put up with going, oh my God, I got that wrong. Again, another one I got wrong. There's a lot you get wrong and some you get right. Yeah. Tell me what's your most satisfying 58%, correct? And what was your most disappointing 45% wrong or something that you know, your conviction told you was right and whether it was personally or institutionally really disappointed you when it didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to. Okay. So another, another one of our asset class adventures, we weren't sure if we wanted to be doing something more entrepreneurial. And so we thought, well, we better try getting involved with some early stage stuff and see how that goes. You know, we don't want to throw in our corporate jobs if we haven't tried that. And so we went really out there. And by this point, we were getting a bit more financially secure. So we felt we could try something a bit riskier, particularly because we didn't own a lot of equities because of my fidelity compliance limitation. So we bought into some really early stage stuff. One of them has been fantastic, one of them not. The one that didn't work out so well, we backed a couple of guys who were trying to bring some salt lake mines into existence. So these ones had potash, which is a fertilizer. Now these days, the brines that are most topical are lithium. So in Australia, we get lithium from hard rock, but in South America, it comes out of these brine pools. So this is the same thing, but it was brine pools in WA. 
And we helped fund the company and we did all the testing. We showed that there really was potash and that you could get it out at these saltwater lakes. Then the company was eventually sold in a backdoor listing. It was listed on the ASX. So we owned a chunk of this listed company that we had helped to found. It was all very exciting. And it was one of the, the best assets of that type of potash in the world. And we're very excited. And the trouble is the company just got to a point where it didn't have adequate funding and the management team had made a couple of missteps and lost the confidence of the market. So people weren't prepared to step up and the whole thing went to zero. So we went from, oh, look at what we've helped create. Look at how much this is worth to, ah, zero. Because it doesn't matter what percent you've owned or something, whatever percent of zero is still zero. So that was really sad. But another one, one that's probably most satisfying is my daughter liked to do indoor rock climbing. So I would take her, we put her in the harness and I'd have to be there belaying her and I'd kind of get behind the board and I'd look around and I'd go, wow, this business, it's, it's a lot of capex. You've got to put in the walls and the hold, but there's no opex. So if you get 100 people come in versus 50 people, it's not like you have to buy more or whatever. There's no opex to it. So it's just additional cash flow. I thought that's really interesting. So then when we were looking for these early stage things to fund, this guy wanted to do a new style of gym, which was bouldering. And bouldering is where you don't have the harness. The walls are, are not as high, so they only go about four meters high. And we've got big I've crash mats underneath. I've been to a bouldering gym. Yeah. I this one. <laughs> so this guy said, these new bouldering gyms are all the rage in Europe, but no one's doing it in Australia. So let's open one of these. And I'm like, yeah, well, I think that could be a really good business model because you've got to kit it all out. But then if you can get people coming in. So we backed this guy and opened nine degrees Alexandria in Sydney. Have you been to one? I have. I have. And it's exploded. They're everywhere now. Congratulations, Kate. Well done. Yeah. And so I've been the chairman and uh, Matane, who was the founder uh, he's the managing director. And so when we've got, you know, obviously a lot of other board members and other management staff and root setters, but it's been super fun to create something out of nothing. And Martin knew everything about bouldering and I knew nothing about bouldering or root setting or anything like that. But I know a lot about finance, uh, a lot about how to fund the business, how to try to avoid a business going to zero, how to fund the growth in a sustainable way and that's just been super fun so yeah we've opened um there, there's there's a new one coming and so yes we have been opening them in sydney and in brisbane and one of the great things is that martin and i have always been aligned around bouldering makes you happy so that's the reason we do it you know there have been great investments we've done well out of them but you know it hasn't been like oh let's make as much money as we can we've just loved to create these community spaces and they do get a community there and it's a very social thing and we've always tried really hard we didn't we never want it to be like the gym where you get your membership and you have to make yourself go you drag yourself out of bed to go sweat and you don't really enjoy it but you know you should we never wanted like that we want it to be a place where you meet up with your friends you have some great coffee you have some fun you have some laughs you fall off the slack line and, you know, just a place that you want to hang out and spend time and it's good for your mind. It's good for your body. So that's just been super fun. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a wonderful use of your combined skills. I love that you would just happen to be bouldering, well, rock climbing yourself when you're like, hey, it's not a bad idea actually for a business. But um, 
You've obviously had a lot of experience in finance and it's wonderful to see all the different ways you've put your money to use because we often hear the same, especially in Australia, everyone loves property, but it's wonderful to see that there's, there's a whole wide world out there for people to invest in and dabble in. But why do you think Australians are still reticent to invest? Well, the best answer for that, the most sensible answer for that is that we have superannuation accounts. So every working Australian has a superannuation account that is invested and that is growing their wealth that way. And I think that's really important because our economy is quite concentrated. You know, we've kind of got two big supermarkets and kind of one big telco and four big banks, and they tend to charge pretty reasonable prices and they make good returns. So you wouldn't want to be just a consumer in Australia because, you know, there's not a lot of competition. There's enough competition, but not huge. I don't, you know, they're not monopolists or anything, but they make good returns. So actually, if you are a consumer in Australia, you really also want to be an investor in Australia. You want to own those shares. You know, a lot of times with the banks, the rate that you can get on a term deposit at the bank is a lot less than the rate you get as an investor getting a frank dividend out of now, to some extent, that's sensible because of risk. You know, a dividend is is more risky, whereas a term deposit return is is contracted, and so you know you should require a higher return to be taking on that risk. But the difference can be quite significant. So, with the wonders of franking, and franking is a great structure, not only because it means you can get a higher return as an investor, but also because it prompts companies to pay out a lot of their shares, a lot of their cash flow. And then investors can reinvest in smaller, more innovative companies rather than having the larger Australian companies just reinvest in their own idea of what's a great growth option. It recirculates the money. So it's a really good way of keeping innovation going in Australia. So charitably, I'd say people are investing less because they know they've got already some in the bank through their super. But with privatizations in previous generations, there were the big demutualizations of AMP. AMP had over a million shareholders. From the demutualization process, people automatically became shareholders. Telstra had its flotation in, in various series, and that created a lot of shareholders. So in previous decades, there have been a lot of people who have been automatically brought in to the investing world. We haven't really had so many of those lately. And so I think now, if you're ever younger than that, then you've kind of got to make more of a positive decision. I'm going to go into it. But like the technology is even easier. It's so much easier to open up a Comsec account or some of the newer online apps. Yeah. I think though people who became investors during the Telstra successive flow. I mean, I think the statistic is Telstra has the most mum and dad investors of any company, which that may have changed subsequently, but it used to be true that they were the largest. And these days though, to me, a lot of the media, especially young people, the fascination is with growth stocks, which everyone's obviously had a rude shock there, but there is a lot to be said for, to your point, franking and dividends and income paying stocks as part of a portfolio, which is what those kinds of like less sexy investments used to do super reliably, that the unicorns and growth assets that are perhaps de jour now don't do. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's value investing when you buy things that are bombed out and really cheap. That's been out of favor for a while. There's kind of buying cash cows like 
the banks, Woolworths, Telstra, Coles, the lottery company, you know, they sell stuff that people are going to keep spending their money on for decades and decades to come. And they do it well, transurban toll roads that we all drive on, but they're not sexy, but they do throw off cash. Those are great ones to own for the long haul. Then there's kind of growth companies that still deliver a lot of cash. So REA, Seek, Wise Tech, you know, these are businesses that are kind of more sexy business models, but they're proven and they're paying dividends. They're delivering the cash. But then you push it out further and you get into these more speculative ones that, you know, institutionally are called lottery ticket stocks. Right, because you're buying a lottery ticket that possibly it pays off and this little software company or this little biotech company or this little um, lithium mining company, like they might be the one that becomes the next whatever and goes up 20-fold. But most of those stocks, if they're not self-funding, if they're not throwing off enough cash, if their business model isn't proven enough to be generating enough cash to keep their own growth going, then they end up like my little brine company where they've got a lot of potential, but if you're not self-funding, you need other people to come in with cash and that requires a lot of confidence. So if market turns, then you can just be a victim of external circumstances. So those, those lottery ticket companies, those are not investing, those are speculating. And you might as well actually just buy a lottery ticket, you know, like I don't know that the odds are, are terribly different. So I don't really think of that as investing, that's more like recreational fun. If buying a lottery ticket is fun for you, then you know you can buy some of those stocks, but they're not called wealth building stocks. I think that's such a good analogy around the spectrum between the lottery ticket, high risk, high reward, and what used to be traditionally considered lower risk, but so much lower reward bonds. And I think that's a great analogy for investors to use to kind of conceptualize that spectrum of risk. But Kate, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. We always have, you know, experts and also just amateur investors talking about their experiences. And I always love to hear about the mechanics and the philosophy behind investing. This is the first time I've heard someone talk about expectations and how that factors into price. And when you're ascertaining whether something is a value stock or whether it's even a right time to buy it. So always such a pleasure to hear your views on investing and all your decades of experience. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's been really fun. Thank you. And to our subscribers and our listeners, thank you for joining us on the podcast this week. Make sure you like and follow. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.